welcome to WP Tonic, episode 131. Today we're talking with WordPress consultant and business coach, Curtis McHale. Before we get into today's interview, I just want to remind everyone, if you're getting value from this show, we would love it if you would go to iTunes, subscribe, and leave us a rating, and help others find this show. Uh, with that, Curtis, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, about your path as a web developer, how you got into web development, and uh, how you got to the present day. So I didn't hit web development till I was right around, I guess, 28 or 29. I spent, in fact, most of my early 20s swearing I'd never even have a cell phone and way out in the outdoors, um, guiding canoe trips and kayaking trips. And then meandered my way through a counseling degree and decided I didn't want to work with whiny people and taught myself development as I was finishing up my client, my, my counseling degree and went out into web development, uh, for, an, for another company initially. And then as quickly as possible for myself, because I have always also run side businesses the entire time. Uh, I've been, uh, working anywhere. I've worked on the side at the same time. And it was just a matter of finding the right business for myself to run, which was development. Very good. Uh, and one of the things I've been following you for a few years now, and, and one of the things it's I've always been impressed by is you've always very clearly defined your reasons for having a business. Um, and you know exactly who you want to serve and what change you want to bring about in the world. How important is it for business owners to know their why, why they're in, you know, in business? It's one of the most important things. It really gets you through the tough times. It also like lets you move through transitions, right? So my why, because I'm looking up above my monitor because that's on my wall, is I help people run the business they want so they can live the life they want to live. And that's my why. And so as a web developer, that allows me, I'm helping them, you know, make more conversions on their site, have a better business so that they can, you know, live that life they want to live. As a business coach, it's the same thing. I'm helping you run a better business so that, you know, you're not working all the time. So you can go spend time with your kids um, and that you can live that life you want to live, not just, you know, like most developers end up working crazy hours and on the weekends and everything else. And then they are really still barely making ends meet. They run a hobby, not a business, mostly a hobby that pays the bills with epic amounts of work usually. No, definitely. And and that's a phrase that I've heard you use several times in in your writing, uh, in your videos, in your podcast. Explain to the, the listeners like more what that means, like running a hobby and not a business. So running a hobby or another way of thinking of it is owning your own job. And that's where you have to show up every day all the time to like to even pay the bills at the end of the month, you have to be there every day all the time, um, which is a hobby or a, right. A hobby is something you don't do that, or there's something you do that doesn't pay all your bills even. And so I remember my first couple years running my own business, I was running a hobby. I was like just barely making ends meet all the time. And in fact, one time I remember saying to my wife, Hey, let's go for a drive together. And Oh, Hey, we're in Abbotsford. We should pick up this check for my clients. And it was totally a ploy. So I could pick up the check from the client so I could pay us that day too. Like it was not a nice date with my wife. It was a sneaky date to pick up a check so he could pay us. And that's how most developers 
uh, designers that I talk to are really running. They might be a little better than that, but it's always, oh, I need more clients. I don't have enough. I, you know, I've got to figure out how to pay the bills this month. Um, and so they're really running a hobby that just sort of usually pays the bills and does a little better sometimes, but then it's, you know, going downhill the other, other months. No, definitely. Well, so how would, how would you, how do you advise people to, to make that transition from running something that doesn't pay the bills to running like a full fledged business or, or another way to phrase that would be, what are some of the obstacles that you see people from that prevent people from being able to attain that? One of the first things I tell most people to do is to raise the rates. Um, because playing with the low rates generally brings in the type of clients that you do not want. And even I was just talking with uh, one of my coaching clients over the last couple of months, we've got him to raise his rates a couple of times, right? He's shown us prices for projects and whatever there is, you know, 5,000, 7,000 and 10,000. And we said, no, 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 go for like seven, 10 and 12. I think we actually told him higher, but we got him up to seven, 10 and 12. And the guy took the $12,000 project immediately. Like no questions asked. It was like, so that's like, that's where you should be pricing yourself. What is even giving him the confidence to do that? Right. Um, and then the clients are treating better. Even clients that he's raised prices are like, oh, last project was hard, tough with these people, but I need the money. And he raised his prices and they're like, oh, this project was really easy suddenly. And it's just having a rate appropriate. You know, you don't charge high rates just simply to charge them, but it does show that you are professional and that you should be treated that way as well. That's usually one of the lowest hanging fruits um, to starting to run that business. And after that is... I believe firmly in scheduling out your, like your calendar, right? So my calendar is full all day. It has this blocked out in it. Um, and then working in that time, I also use what's called the Pomodoro method to work for 25 minutes and take 25, you know, take five minutes off to be very focused in that. And that allows me generally to do what be considered a full day worth of work in about six hours. And then I go home for the day because I don't also I rent an external like I'm an external tenant in this building so I don't need to talk to anyone I just work all day and no, doing those few things or plan like planning even like before I even go at the end of the day I'll plan my ta- first task for tomorrow and I'll come in and do that and I won't check my email till noon yeah and I think a lot of there's so many good things that you just said there um, it, and I want to address some of those uh, one of the things you said was you block out your time and uh, you don't necessarily check your email like every five minutes. And I know that you're a big proponent of deep work where you have focus, where you're able to get more done. And I think a lot of people who are out there uh, as solo web professionals, they feel like they need to answer the email like as soon as the client you know, sends an email or the instant they pick up the phone, they have to, they have to answer. Um, why is that something that, that you advise against? Well, first off, I think that if your clients are emailing you during the project, you're already using a broken system, mainly because email is so distracting, right? Next to your client email is a newsletter that you're interested in or a newsletter you're not interested in or something else, right? And Or 72 other things, depending on the day. It's not uncommon for me to wake up and see like 42 emails in the inbox. 
So I actually move every current project out of email immediately, and they're required to read a project success page, which I've linked to a few times on my site, which says, don't email me. Use the project management tool, only use the project management tool. If you don't use the project management tool, I may not get to you because if I'm busy, I don't check my email for a couple of days sometimes. Um, so moving them out of that, and that's what I do with all of my current clients that currently have a project. They're in that system. That is all I check. I check that a couple times a day, but say even before, even before that, I've defined the day before what I want to do in the morning, right? What's my first task for the day? What project am I working on? I don't have to think about it. I actually define most of those on Friday. So I can tell you, like, last Friday before I left, I could tell you what I was working on every hour for the whole week. And while things come up, I'm des- you des- I've designed my ideal week, and then I do my best to make it match up to it, right? I found it on Sunday that my wife has a hair appointment tonight, so I came in, like, two hours early. So I could, you know, get home early and then get my wife out to a hair appointment and take the kids out to figure skating and, you know, instead of end, suddenly ending my day early, I planned it and planned ahead with her. Definitely. Another thing that I want to unpack is, is when you said a lot of people are not charging what they should be as professionals. They're charging too little. And that, that's part of what's keeping them from running a real business is mm-hmm. they're not profitable and what do you think holds people back? Is it confidence? Is it being used? Maybe they don't think they should be charging that much because they're used to ch- charging like maybe what they earned as an employee somewhere else. What are your thoughts on yeah, that? I think first off, if you're charging what you earned as an employee, realize your employer was expecting you cost 50% more than that, right? So double it immediately. Whatever you made, you need to double it immediately as a barely baseline. Um, but I think it does come down a lot to confidence and to boldness, but then you also come down to like, if you're not offering options in your proposals, you're immediately making it a binary decision. Is this good or not for me? If you're offering say three options. So if you, if there are three people quoting on a project and you offer three options, you now have three possibilities of decision versus two that are not working for you. So you have most of the decisions sitting with you already, right? And the client can choose their level of value with you immediately. So offering that allows you to raise your prices where you can say, okay, here's the base, what they want. Here's something extra. And here's something they said, oh, this is a dream. If we could do this, I'd love to do it. And you add, you know, that as your third option. And that alone uh, will help. Even if you don't raise your rates, that will help raise your profitability immediately. And close, like increase your win rate. I can't tell you the last time I sent out a proposal. That's not true. Last Christmas, right? I sent out a proposal that I didn't win because I did not, um, I didn't ask the right questions, really. It was my fault. It was not the client necessarily at all. They didn't choose to go with someone else. They just chose not to do it because it was too much. So that definitely brings up another great thing is when it comes to asking the right questions, I think a lot of web professionals, they have the tendency to, the minute they're talking to the client, they're already thinking of how to solve the problem. And one thing that's made a big difference in my business this year is there's two things like charging for discovery each and every time and spending a lot more time in the planning and, and talking to the client phase, uh, you know, taking some of that time away from the uh, development phase. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, discovery and, and Socratic questioning when it comes to, finding the problems that you're trying to solve for your client? I think it is paramount. Um, 
I think that you need to know why the client is even doing it to decide if it's even valuable for them. There's more than one project in the last you know, year and a half or two years maybe where we've dug into it a bit and during a paid discovery, we've dug into it a bit and just found out that you're, this is going to pay off for you in 10 years. Is that a return on investment you were hoping for? And by I mean payoff, I mean like it's going to finally barely break even probably in about 10 years. And the client says, well, that's a dumb idea. Like, You're right. So let's not do it. Um, even finding that is valuable. That's probably going to say another reason why developers aren't earning as much as they feel they maybe should, but they're never diving into that part. They want to, you know, play with the code or go and then go into, you know, mole. you had a question later about communication, but developers want to go into mole mode. They just want to go and program for three weeks and then they'll come back and be like, here you go. And the client's like, where were you for three weeks? Right. So. Most definitely. And, and that's another thing I feel that is probably a big opportunity for a lot of uh, web professionals and uh, you know people who are out there freelancing is they don't communicate enough or they don't make their clients like feel secure because they they go in the mole hole for three weeks as you said and and what are what things do you prescribe you know to other web professionals to maybe help them with their communication with their clients. Every Friday, my client gets a recap of what got done this week. What's the plan for next week? And it's, you know, like a three point update in Red Booth is this project manager system I use. Every Monday, they basically get the same thing that says, hey, this is what we're going to do this week. And on Tuesdays, we have a, it's booked for a 30 minute call. Usually take about 10 minutes where we just recap and talk about anything that they came up and one of the questions I always ask is, how do you feel with how the project's going? And there are plenty of times with clients where they said, I'm not happy about this. And we say, oh, okay, and we talk a little bit more and we come up with a solution. And the next Tuesday, like, oh, I'm so happy we talked about that last week. That's the project is going great. I love it, right? And that just because I've asked and we've addressed the issue. Sometimes we say, well, we, you know, it's a technical issue. We can't do this. So, and, but by the, because we've addressed it and we've talked about it together, they are now in with the process and happy with the project. So I get on, say I get on Skype with them every week and we talk for, you know, say 10 or 15 minutes, sometimes a little longer depending on the client, but most clients I would say only take 10 or 15 minutes. And that includes like, we usually talk about um, whatever, right? I have a working with a homeschool site right now. And so we, we also homeschool and our kids are about the same age. So we usually laugh at the ridiculous things one of our children has done for a couple minutes. And then, you know, we talk about the project. Most definitely. Uh, I'm going to ask one more question before we go to commercial break. And uh, that is, uh, when it comes to pricing, uh, you know, what are your thoughts when it comes to how people determine their rates? And, you know, what are your thoughts on billing by the hour versus value pricing, which is... uh, becoming more popular, but I, I think a lot of people don't know how to value price. You know, what do you find like works for most web professionals? I fall on the value pricing side of it, the equation, uh, always. But I think most people, when they do value pricing, they think they're just going to guess at the number they want to charge. They don't actually look at the value to the client, right? So they can't tell you that, okay, because we're going to, you know, institute this new 
still use the homeschool because we're going to institute this new system, um, new membership system. What we're going to, what are we going to do? Well, we're not going to have the maintenance people of the other system we were using crash our site every quarter almost because they're fixing something, right? <laughs> and they're going to crash it and it'll be down for a couple of days. And then we've got to get someone else to come in and fix it. And they have no idea what they did. And so that's one benefit. You know, another one for them is they can pull out reports. Right now, there's all these reports on their members that they can't, they can't tell you necessarily how much it's making per month just out of the site. They've got to go through to PayPal and go through to Stripe and do all this math to figure it out. So we're going to save time on that. And then they're going to gain a whole bunch of new features, right? So we can, they can sell you know, all these other products that they have planned. So at the end of it, we say, well, you know, we, can, we can reasonably expect that over the course of this changeover, because it's going to take a couple of months to change over to the system and get everyone into the new billing system, but we can expect that we're going to realize an extra revenue of you know, five or $6,000 a month probably. So saying we're going to charge you know, 15, I think I offered her like 12, 15 and $20,000 options. And those are all totally viable, right? They're going to see those in two, three or four months as a return on investment. Yes, definitely. So, and I usually go for a ten x. I usually go for a ten x uh, return if I can. But if it's lower than three x, I really start questioning with the client if it's if it's viable, right? So, if I'm going to charge you ten thousand and I can't see that there's a viable path for you making thirty out of this, whether that's thirty in save time, so you don't have to hire an employee, or thirty in extra revenue, or a split of some fashion, right, percentage wise, then we question whether we're going to do it. Uh, occasionally, we've t- I've done those but that's because it's part of a long-term play right okay this is the first step here's the long-term plan i say okay once i see these all these other pieces come in i can see we're going to see like a 20x return really because by the time you paid for all of these other pieces this is this is a good idea now i still believe you should probably have an effective hourly rate um, and diane kenny talked about this really well in post status recently i'm a little bit behind so i'm not sure it was last week or the week before um, but she talked about like timing doing all your time which i had gotten out of for a long time but i started a couple months ago so I'm just finally starting to realize good numbers on that. So even even right now, I am timing with Toggle to see, like to add this to my marketing time for external marketing purposes. Um, and so you should be timing that and seeing like what is really profitable, good or bad. Not that I like Toggle, I don't use as my billing system at all. So it's never going to see, the client will never see it, but it is good for me to know um, what's good and what's bad and how that is, how my profitability is actually working out and what type of projects it's working out well. So, so just as a follow-up question, like you, you basically time track internally just to see, to gauge it against your effective hourly rate mm-hmm. to, to see if a project is profitable according to your internal gauging. Yeah. And I also use time tracking to see, so I say I have an ideal week designed um, and I time track and toggle as you color code stuff, but I just basically color code it into external and internal work, right? So this will be counted as internal because it's safe for marketing purposes, but all client work gets, I think it's purple and green is all internal work, writing, working on my site, all that stuff. And I basically want to see at the end of the week that my percentage of hours is pretty close to what I expected it to be, right? I said I would do whatever, 25 hours for clients this week. What did I get? Well, I get somewhere between like 22 and 27 and that was a decent week. Right. And see, you know, same on the other side, some weeks will be a little heavier weighted to one or the other. And that's what I use it for internally as well, as well as, you know, it was this project actually profitable. What's my effective hourly rate on it. Absolutely. No, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, we're going to go to our break. And then when we come back, we'll be talking more with Curtis McHale. 
Buying or selling a home in the greater Reno Tahoe area? I know the best CRS real estate broker, and that's Karen Conrad. And you can find her at karenconrad.com or call directly at 775-527-7021. All right, we're back from our break. We're talking with the WordPress consultant and business coach, Curtis McHale. Uh, One of the things that you talk about a lot in your writing and your podcast is, uh, you know, people finding, have a hard time finding leads. And for you, how has your lead generation system changed over time? So I formerly spent a bunch of time writing a technical site and getting in with a reasonably technical community like Pippin Williams, Williamson the founder of Easy Digital Downloads and the lead developers of many of the top plugins that I work with. And so now I mainly rely on that. They send me not only, I'm on a lot of their contact forums for recommended developers, but I'm also like when they someone goes through support and has a problem and they like support will send them to me, right? I'm also on the support side for one of the two or three of the say, we'll say top developers internally as well. Um, but even colleagues. So like if someone comes to me with a payment, gateway, I don't do it. I send them to one of my friends because that's just better for them or, you know, an email service gateway, anything like that. I don't want to do that. Alternatively, if someone has theme work, you know, to build the site, to increase conversions, my friends don't want to do that either. And so they send it to me. Um, so it is mainly referrals now for the development side because I am building up the coaching side right now of my business. Um, and with that, I do essentially the same thing I did with the development side. I write, I speak, I get on podcasts, I do my own podcast, and it's in many ways getting known. Something that I will be pushing harder starting next year was actually speaking at a lot more word camps all over and a lot more conferences all over. Um, I don't do that now because as much as a pain in the ass, my kids are at 5 a.m. when they decide they want to get up. I miss my kids when I go away. And once we will be traveling next year, so I'll start speaking all over as we travel, right? When I can be, you know, say near Florida when there's a hurricane and go speak at a word camp for fun in a hurricane (laughs) to use a pertinent example for right now, or, you know, something like that. Right. So I, I'll go to my local word camp in Vancouver. Um, I occasionally have gone to Seattle. um, There's no no hurricanes in Vancouver, is there? There's no what? No hurricanes in Vancouver. No, lots and lots of rain, though. Despite the sunniness outside, we're supposed to get lots and lots of rain today. But that's just normal here. So, Definitely. Um, I'm going to ask a follow-up question to that, and uh, then I'm going to kick it over to Jonathan Denwood. Um, you put a lot of effort into marketing. You write daily on your blog. You have your podcast, The Smart Business Show. Uh, with the accompanying YouTube channel. I see you make appearances on other podcasts. I see you guest write in all manner of um, publications. Why are are more web professionals not doing this? Um, Seeing as how we are in the digital world, we're basically online marketers. Why, Why are more people not doing this? They're lazy. As I... I think about it earlier, just said it earlier, people want success without the actual effort, right? Everyone wants to, you know, some fake but idealized, you know, sitting on the beach with your laptop and, you know, drinking whatever you choose to drink. And that's what they want, but they don't actually do any effort to get there. So I know 
you know, even some people who are farther ahead than me in the say business or course realm, like Brennan Dunn, I have known Brennan for a number of years now. I know the amount of work he put in. And while it is less work now, he is still putting in more work than you probably expect. And the work he put in formerly was huge to get to where he is, right? And I know a number of other people that are the same way. They're the instant overnight success after 20 years of doing pretty much the same thing. Right? Even uh, Chris Lemma is a name that's well known in the WordPress industry. And he seemingly came into the WordPress industry like out of nowhere in like a year, he suddenly was like, you know, all the big companies were consulting with him. He spent 20 years in software development. He spent a year researching the WordPress economy and where he should fit and positioning him, deciding where he should position himself before he went out and attacked it. And in one year he did get a huge success, but he has 20 years of experience doing these types of things. So of course he did really well, right? It's like some top, well, top uh, cyclist starts doing triathlons and within a year they're like, oh, one of the top contenders. Well, of course they are. They were already had all this base of fitness and all this other stuff. They had to transition, you know, into some parts of it, but most of it was already there. So, so bottom line, there's, there's not like a real shortcut to success. Maybe we don't see it, but those no. people are putting in the work. Yeah, the only shortcut is to look at the people that are doing what you want already and model after them. And if they're talking about the mistakes, try not to make the mistakes. That's going to get you there faster. Um, there's also, what is it? it's always attributed to Malcolm Gladwell, the 10,000 hour rule. Um, I know I've listened to a few podcasts with like the original founders of the study, and that's probably a misnomer. What they would actually say is it's 10,000 hours of um, specific practice. Right. So it's not just, you know, I'm going to go walk for 10,000 hours and I'll be a runner. I'm going to go run. I'm going to train. I'm going to do track workouts. I'm going to, you know, run intervals. I'm going to run hills. I'm going to do all this other stuff. I'm going to have a coach that's going to come back and say, this was wrong. This is why we didn't do it well. Or I can see your heart rate's too high. You're probably sick. That means we need to taper off a little bit. It's 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. Um, not just, not just doing the activity, right? Definitely. Jonathan. Oh, hi there, Curtis. Um, so, like like you said earlier on, you know, you've got a lot of developers that that really just got a hobby business and they're doing a lot of hours and they got to the stage where they're thinking of going back to the corporate booth. I wonder if you could give, like, some over, let's say, a three-month or six-month, give some tips or advice actionable things that they might be able to do to turn things around in a three month to six month period. Yep. So one thing we done this with one of my coaching clients recently, he was having a low continually low leads and we worked together and we got him on recommend developer lists for about the five or six top plugins that he wanted to be on. Um, simply by asking, he was surprised at how easy it was. He said, hey, I'd like to be a recommended developer. Here's some projects I've done and sent them some code. And they said, oh, absolutely. We'd love more recommended developers that we can trust. Um, he reached out to, I, I had a couple contacts I sent him to. If they had for, you know, if you have overflow work, you should talk to my friend, John. Um, and he, you know, he got more work out of that. And in a few, probably about two or three weeks, we increased that. He's also started writing, right? Blogging about topics that specifically, not just, that's another thing developers do when they blog. And it's good. But if you're writing, say, four blog posts a month, one a week, you should be writing one for your peers and the rest of them should be for your clients. So what, like, what problems are your clients going to be at? And that, but that's going to take longer than the kind of the instant three, you know, three-day turnaround or something. The fastest is to network a little more, get people to refer clients to you, right? Get on those recommended developer lists. They are 
sometimes a little lower quality leads, but it's still getting leads in. And some, and you know, surprisingly, say if you have 10 of the lower quality leads, there's usually one gem in there, right? On, I'm on a number of them. And usually from each list, there's one project every year that I look at and I'm like, that looks like a really good project. And I start asking more questions and it is like a $20,000 project. They just didn't know where else to turn, right? So that's the fastest return I've seen is getting on those lists and starting to network uh, a little bit more and intentionally networking and not just showing up at some, you know, WordCamp or a meetup group and just standing in the corner and talking to people, but like looking at the list and saying, who's on this list? Who's going to this meetup tonight? Cause meetup shows you and looking through the site that the person has linked in their profile and saying, this person looks like they could be a good one. I need to go say hello to them and say, hi, I'm, you know, I'm Curtis. You know, what do you do? Tell me more about your business. I looked it up and I see that you do this. Can you just tell me more about that? And intentionally asking, ask questions, ask more questions, talk less, which is you know funny that I'm being interviewed on the podcast, but that's something that sits right here on my monitor to remind me, ask more questions, talk less in every, basically in every facet. Great, Curtis. Um, just a follow through question. Um, based on my experience, there's a lot, a lot of small businesses that, would consider $1,000 to $3,000 a lot of money. And how do you position yourself? I know you touched this um, during the conversation, but how, you know, I think um, the larger businesses tend to have um, more management, more layers, which can in some ways make it harder to get to the decision maker. But what, in a long-winded way, how do you position yourself um, where you're dealing between the six to fifteen thousand? When you're, what are the type of events in your area where you meet those clients rather than the thousand to three thousand dollar clients? So, first off, I work for almost nobody in Canada. Even all, almost all of my clients are in the U.S. My biggest client this year was probably. Uh, I think it's Malaysia, somewhere in that region anyways. Um, I worked for someone in New Zealand. All of those came from referrals. Um, but I think we also vastly underestimate the amount of businesses there are that have 10 or 15 employees that, you know, if I could say we're going to spend $10,000 on X and you're going to get, you know, $30,000 back, they'd say, oh, okay. Right. Even my local bike shop and bike shops are not, not low profit, but they're not like a high profit retail endeavor. And talking to the bike shop owner that I used to work for, we talked num- numerous times. And I don't generally work for friends. I referred him off to someone else. But once we talked through like the return on investment he could see and how we could position it, he was totally in for a, a $10,000 spend. He had to save a little bit for it and you know budget for it. But we vastly underestimate how many people actually are willing to spend that when you show them the value, when you talk through it. Now, there's also plenty of leads you're going to get, right? When I first started out, I hit Craigslist and like my local chamber of commerce and just like look around for all these sites. And I sent 10 emails a day to get my business rolling. I don't do that now, but just generating enough motion brought in enough income at the beginning. Um, and there was lots of low value things in there where I was trying to justify um, that I wanted to do like that. You should be doing work, but there's, there's ten of, there's tons out there. I think we vastly underestimate or overestimate how many clients we need in a year. Right. Like you need 10 clients at $10,000 to make $100,000 in a year. Are there 10 people in the world that you could service 
that have $10,000 that you could help them earn more money? Yes, there are, right? If you want to do $20,000, you need half the clients again. So I work for like seven people a year, generally, six, seven, maybe eight people a year on substantial projects. I have old clients that I'll come through and it's, you know, a couple hundred dollars here and there. And it's just a quick fix and I'll do that. But that's, you know, the bulk of my income is out of those 10 clients in a year. Thanks. Go on, John. Got a question? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Sure thing. Um, So one of the things that you've talked about extensively in your writing is, is writing proposals for clients. And what are the biggest misconceptions people have about writing a winning proposal? I think one of the things is that they figure that it's 90% of the sales process is the proposal. And it's not like 98% of the sales process happens before you ever hand them a piece of paper. By the time the client has seen the piece of paper, I've actually worked on the proposal, every part of it, except the pricing with them collaboratively. I open up a Google doc, I open up and I have like all my sections laid out except for pricing and timelines. That's all on me. And we've worked on it together. We've refined it. They've, I've written it out first, the first draft, and they've gone in and edited it and said, you know, nope, that's not my goal. And we adjust the goal. I do it that way because there's always three things said. One of the great things out of my counseling degree, there are always three things said. What you thought you said, what you actually said, and what the other person heard. And those can be wildly different, right? If you're ever had a girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, anything, you know, you'll say something and they're like, I can't believe you just said that to me. And it's like, no, that was like, I was trying to tell you I loved you. Like, what do you mean? Why are you mad about that? And they're like, oh, I didn't get that at all. It was totally rude, I thought, right? And so there's always wildly different things. Um, and then providing options, which I already said that providing options is one of the key ways to raise your rates a little bit and to try out higher prices at the same time. And I am consistently surprised at how often clients go for a higher option than they even said their budget was. If they told me a budget of $10,000, my third option is usually say 11 to $12,000. And so consistently clients go in for the 11 or $12,000. And that's usually something where they said, uh, earlier this year, there's a client and they had to do a ton of HTML coding to make their site work. And I said, that's ridiculous. And so I, as I was writing the proposal, I thought automation is the real issue. That's mostly what we're doing. We're automating this. Yes, we're adding a theme, but ultimately this is automation. A lot of the, the processes, which was mostly just setting up WordPress properly, really. And I said, you know, I can create new memberships in Restrict Content, or sorry, in um, yeah, Restrict Content Pro uh, by Pippin. Um, I buy with a checkbox. I can say, check this box. It'll spin up a new membership for that category and it'll be done. And I said that that's going to cost four grand. And he said, okay, like not a question asked five minutes after I sent out the proposal, I had money coming into, into my bank account. Um, and that was above, above his budget because I latched onto what his, I guess what his dream was, what the ultimate goal he was pushing for was. And then I, I provided that right. His, Another thing people do, even when they provide options, the first option is, so say the client from wants an e-commerce site and the first option is I'll build you a theme. And the second option is I'll build you a theme in an e-commerce site. The first option doesn't even count. They can't even take that, right? It's like saying, I want to buy a car. Well, I got a car over here. It has no wheels and no engine, but there's a car you can look at. Well, that doesn't count. <laughs> You're fooling yourself saying that that's an, even an option. Like it needs wheels and it needs an engine and it needs to turn on. Like those are some basics that it has to do. So that is it. Um, yeah, and say work on it collaboratively, spend a lot of time up front. So every client that I have a proposal with, say almost every client, sometimes recurring clients get to skip or clients that are get to skip part of the process, but 
they get an email with, I think it's nine questions that basically ask a lot of why are we even doing this project? Like, what's the point of it? Um, what are you going to get out of it? What's the timelines? What's your budget? Those type of questions. And those are all up on my site somewhere. I have to find the link exactly now. But they are all, I think eight, eight of them are up there. And then the other one I've added is just a, a variation on one of the questions because it gave more clarity. Um, and then they all get a phone call. That's sometimes where I skip with existing clients because we've all talked about things lots of times. I know their site, they know me, and it's I don't have to vet to see if they're good to work with each other, right? Uh, unless there's some technical clarity we need together. Uh, and then if I can determine the project well after that phone call, I will do a proposal. If not, then the next thing is paid discovery. And that's the proposal they get is paid discovery. And usually I can tell within the first 10 or 15 minutes of a call if we're going to get to that point or not. And uh, then I will like I will be prepping them for paid discovery and selling them on that in that first call, paid discovery of X number of dollars. And the thing is, especially once you've done paid discovery, you're and done it well. Let's caveat this all. You've done the first part well, then your win rate should be like ninety nine point nine percent on the next part because you already there. And I'll like I'll produce a whole report sometimes. And say here you go, like here you go, take this to anyone you want, and they'll get other prices and they'll say your prices were way higher. And I say yes. And that's it. That's all you say is yes or okay. And they will talk themselves around most of the time within a minute or two of going with you anyways. That's, I think I heard this first from Chris Lemma whenever someone asks you about or says something about pricing, your prices are higher. That was not a question. So the first thing you do is maybe not even say, okay, just sit there quietly because they didn't ask you a question. That was a statement. And what psychologically, and they may not even realize that what they're waiting for you to do is say, oh, well, we could do it cheaper, Right. And that's your instant reaction, but to just sit quietly and say nothing because they will generally just come back around to, Oh yeah. Okay. We'll take it. Right. You're setting your boundary and you're holding it basically. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And occasionally I'll have clients look at the three options and say, Oh, I'd really like this and option three, but the pricing is too high. And so like, what can we do? And we'll rearrange it and come up with our own custom option that sits somewhere between two and three, or we cut something out of two that you know maybe isn't ultimately needed, but something in three really was now that they looked at it. And that's fine too. I never mind doing that, but they don't. We don't just like stick something out of their one option into the lower option and do it for free or anything. No, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. I think we're going to wrap up the regular portion of our podcast um, and then after this, we will have some bonus content that will be available on the WP Tonic website from this interview. But before we go, I know that you have two books that you would like to give away. Um, and we will be selecting those um, by viewers or the listeners. You can get a hold of us uh, and just tell us what was the the biggest thing that you learned from this interview with Curtis that you didn't know before? And you can get a hold of us uh, via email. Uh, you can hit us up on Twitter, or you can uh, leave a comment on the blog. Uh, but tell us a little bit about the two books that you would like to give away. So the first one is Effective Client Email, and it is every email template that I have that I use for like my Monday uh, recap, my Friday recap, my initial client questions, my no, my, my no go away email, which is polite and lets me write, lets me write adult words and auto fills into a very polite 
thank you very much. Have a good time with your project when that client is rude. <laughs> um, and all those emails and just what it means to send an effective email. Uh, and there's also some stuff in there about cold emailing as well. Uh, and the second one is called writing proposals that win work and is all about writing effective proposals. It's, uh, gives you the six sections that I use in my proposals and it will give you demo proposals that I think it even has the one where I, uh, has a variation on the one with names changed and scenarios changed, but where I did the automation that I talked about today, um, where it shows you the exact options I used uh, and how to write good proposals. Those are the two books that we will give away. And definitely, and I have read those and they're excellent. I learned a lot from them myself. So uh, definitely leave us a comment on the blog, leave a comment on our YouTube, uh, or get a hold of us via Twitter. And we will announce those winners in a couple weeks. Um, so for outros, Curtis, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, they can go to curtismchale.ca. That's C-U-R-T-I-S-M-C-H-A-L-E.ca. Uh, that's the best spot. And I'm Curtis McHale, all lowercase, everywhere. So you can find me on Twitter there. Yeah, that's really all I do. So Twitter. I suppose I have a Flickr account, but I don't use it. So it's there, though. <laughs> Very good. Jonathan, how do people get a hold of you? Oh, I'm quite easy. I'm over the internet like a rash, aren't I, John? Um, you can um, email me at jonathan at wp-tonic.com. I do answer my email um, after a couple of days. Uh, um, and, uh, you, I'm always on Twitter, um, so at Jonathan Denwood. I've been told that I reply to those pretty quick. Um, but I'm pretty accessible when I'm not focused, folks. So contact me. Very good. And you can get a hold of me on my website, which is lockdowndesign.com. And you can also find me on Twitter, lockdown underscore. With that, we're going to wrap up the podcast. Be sure to catch the bonus content on the WP Tonic website. For everyone here, Thank you so much. Thank you for appearing, Curtis. And we're signing off. Mm-hmm.